I grew up in New Jersey, right outside New York City. So I grew up with Donald Trump being a buffoon on the you know front page of the tabloids. And he was a joke. Nobody took Donald Trump seriously in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area, the tri-state area. We saw what an obnoxious, you know, attention whore that he was throughout the whole 80s and 90s when he, who bankrupts casinos more than once? Who does that? Welcome back to the Tell It Like It Is podcast, where badass women around the world tell it like it really is. I'm your host, Cassandra Ray, recording today at London's famous Camden Records. My guest today is CNN political commentator and senior advisor to the Lincoln Project, Tara Setmayer. Tara was an early and vocal never-Trumper. She's also the host of her own podcast, Honestly Speaking with Tara Setmayer. Now, as the name of her podcast suggests, Tara is known for her no BS, telling it straight communication style. So I knew right from the start that we'd get along. And you'll hear we got right into it. Actually, as we were performing the sound checks, we started the interview because we just got into it. And of course, we talked a lot of politics. She definitely pulled no punches about her views about Trump. I mean, she called him a sick motherfucker. (laughs) Uh, We talked about his diseased mind, all of which I agree with. But, you know, beyond the political, the thing that really struck me about her was really just how wonderfully she is able to balance the humility of admitting she got some things wrong in the past. She might have been part of what's led us here today with the confidence in who she is now and what she's working towards now. She was really willing to delve into complicated, nuanced issues that don't always have an easy, soundbiteable answer. I mean, some that just don't have answers at all, maybe. And she really, really doesn't shy away from her own ambitions. You know, she steps into her power, but she does it in a way that feels both very assertive, unapologetic, but also really respectful. I was really just delighted to speak with her. And to be honest, I learned a lot from her. In this super divided tribal time we live in, I think it's an important reminder, or at least it was an important reminder to me, that we can learn and grow a lot from getting out of our bubbles and talking to people who don't agree with us on absolutely everything. And also that even on different sides of the political divide, we're really not as far apart as we might imagine. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Tara Setmayer. I was so impressed actually with the the Lincoln Project statement after um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away because, I mean, are you feeling a bit conflicted given the fact that like you might prefer a conservative justice in the court? Under normal circumstances, I would have, but I just feel that the the existential threat that Donald Trump poses is so much bigger than any ideological preference I may have that it it, it doesn't matter. You know, I mean, I respect Ruth Bader Ginsburg's career and what she did and what she represented for women like me and you and everybody else. Mm. Um, so that at this point in my life is more important to me than ideological wins. Certain things are just bigger than that. The institution of the court is bigger than than whether it's, you know, a conservative judge that I ha- I may be more in line with ideologically. Yeah. It's um yeah, I, I worry about the long-term damage that this would do to the Supreme Court because Democrats are looking to retaliate. 
And the Supreme yeah. Court, when you start politicizing it like that, it's the one branch of government that shouldn't be that politicized. And um, even though the nomination fights have become more politicized over the you know last couple of decades, but it's uh, I just think that the way the Republicans are going about it, the hypocrisy with it is, it's just, it, again, it's another storied institution being ripped apart by Donald Trump and Republican enablers. Yeah, I mean, I've been doing a lot of introspection because if roles were reversed as, you know, a center leftist, um, you know, we we really opposed Mitch McConnell not giving the vote to Merrick Garland. I've, I really opposed that. And mm-hmm. so now and it's right been almost... Yeah, and I was right to, right? I was yeah. right to. Um, and, I mean, I supported and, it back then, of course, because I looked at it like, well, it's the Biden rule. He said it. You know, of course, I didn't want Barack Obama to name another Supreme Court justice. And mm-hmm. uh, But it was, in, a, in retrospect, it was not the right thing to do. It wasn't. And here we yeah. are where the roles are reversed. And I still, you know, I'm like, you know what? It wasn't the right thing to do then. This this time around, though, it's even closer to an election in the yeah. middle of a shit show of an, an a wannabe authoritarian president who's threatening all kinds of things to our basic institutions. It's just not worth it. And then when you have that level of hypocrisy, how do you ever walk that back? The precedent yeah. you're setting is terrible in the long run. So it's a mess. It's really just a mess all the way around. Do you think we've got a chance of preventing them from... None. None. No, <laughs> no, no. There's yeah. no chance of them, of stopping them, un- unless the nominee, there, something comes out like, you know, she was a porn star or something. But then again, that might <laughs> that might help her get on the Supreme Court, given that the president, you know, and his penchant for porn stars, and he got elected, so... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think they're thinking about nominating a porn star. It's rather rather a, you know... You'd never, you never way, know but. what you can uncover these days. But no, yeah, I, I am really concerned. He's he's thinking about you know someone that he has hand selected that will side with him should he want to challenge the mail in votes, for example. Um, that's that's the kind of stuff that really scares me because he clearly isn't going to want to accept defeat in this election, right? And that's um, I think that's the biggest concern. A lot of a lot of women obviously are concerned about the Roe v. Wade decision and that being overturned if we have a six three court. I think that that would be less likely um, just because it's it, it has been established law for so long that I, I can't imagine even as vehemently pro-life that let's say an Amy Comey Barrett might be, um, I don't see them going down that road. It's really not up to the Supreme Court to overturn well-established law like that. We're not talking about slavery or, you know, Jim Crow. Um, so... But but where it does come into play immediately is if we had, God forbid, we run into another uh, Bush v. Gore type situation yes. um, in 2000. And, you know, it's hard to predict what people are going to do because we've seen so many people just abandon their principles through this whole Trump nightmare. Um, but I can't imagine that whoever he picked that got um, confirmed would go so far as to pay back a political favor when the appointment is for a lifetime. That's the Mm -hmm. benefit of the Supreme Court. It's not like it's a term where you need to kind of thank the folks who helped you get there. It's a lifetime appointment. And the people that he's looking at, they're young. In their late 40s or early 50s, they're young. So they'll be there way long after Donald Trump is dead and buried. So would they really 
be that politically motivated to issue a ruling to help Donald Trump win the election. It's a little short-sighted, but not completely implausible, which is what makes this all so scary. Yeah. And, you know, they might support Trump, right? They might actually think he's he's great. I mean, who knows, right? I, I feel <sighs> really out of touch with how a lot of people feel because I, I look at them, I think, how could you, it's so obvious. It's so obvious. Like how how is anybody not seeing this? But I have my own family members who don't see it, you know? Yeah, so, that's tough. I'm glad. Really I'm tough. so thankful I don't have a divided family. My family's very small, so <laughs> there's only a couple of us. It's <laughs> me, my husband, my mom, my stepdad, and that's it. <laughs> yeah, my grandparents yeah. have passed away. I don't have any siblings. I don't have any cousins. Um, I have one crazy aunt who lives in Florida, but you know who doesn't have one of those? Florida. She's going to Florida. <laughs> yeah, you know, we're from New Jersey originally, but she fits in really well down there. So she can have that. Um, we don't really have to worry about her coming to Thanksgiving dinners and, and ruining them. Ruining them. So, mm. so thank God we don't have a divided household politically or in sports. We're all Giants fans here. So <laughs> that, makes, that makes our holidays um, much more enjoyable than some other families, unfortunately. Well, since I've had since I've moved to the UK, I've had to become a uh, a soccer fan. Although my my husband would kill me for saying soccer, so oh, you know, it's a football, football fan. Yeah, yeah. But I value my relationship, and so I have I have become a football fan, and and learned enough about it. You know. Can I ask you really quickly? Are you a cricket fan? Okay. Here's the thing. <laughs> here's the thing. I actually love all live sports. I don't understand one fucking rule of cricket, but I have seen it live and I'm like, I got really into it. But if you yes. show that shit to me on TV again, I'm like, what? I don't get so it. that is hilarious. Uh, I'm just going to say this really quickly, just because you said you moved to the UK and you talked about having to get into uh, football. And um, my husband is a 20-year veteran federal law enforcement officer. He is um, he's a pretty badass dude, right? He came to me a couple of years ago and said he wanted to start a cricket clothing line. Now, my <laughs> husband is from Brooklyn, okay? He's, um, you know, he grew up in Brooklyn. There's a lot of West Indians there. So, you know, they love cricket because they're, you know, they're British colonial um, outposts for years. So that influence was there. And he thought that cricket was cool. When he came to me and said that he wanted to do this, I said, cricket? I said, it takes five fucking days to play a, day, a, a game of cricket, a cricket match. Who, <laughs> why? What is with the cricket? He was like, no, I'm telling you, it's really interesting. And, and I said, honey, cricket? He said, listen, cricket is the number two most popular sport in the world. Yeah. The market is huge for this. And it's not that big in the U.S. because no one's really done it. But there's a lot of cricket leagues in the U.S. because of the international influence, especially in D.C., Washington, um, Washington D.C., New York, South Florida. And I said, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, let me look into this. That was did two you start and a half it? years ago. Yes, we did. It's called London oh Royce God. Cricket. And um, he started it. It's been really taking off. And I now am all into cricket because I was like you. I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. I'm a huge sports fan. Like I watch football, baseball, yeah. basketball. Like sports is my thing. I played sports in high school. Um, but the cricket rules, I was like, okay, what is happening? 
Once I learned the basic rules of cricket and started to research it and learn the history of the game, I'm all into it now. You should have seen us in our house watching cricket at like eight o'clock in the morning during the Cricket World Cup last year. Yes, unsociable hours for Americans, unfortunately. (laughs) That's okay because we have a cricket station here called Willow. So we see the highlights from (laughs) all kinds of games all over the place. But the World Cup was live. So we were up at like eight in the morning watching the World Cup between, it was between England and New Zealand. Now we were cheering for New Zealand because we have friends from there. We visited there. We were into New Zealand rugby. So we were cheering for New Zealand. Nobody's perfect. That's all right. Listen, (laughs) you know, but that turned out to be the most unbelievable cricket match in like World Cup history. And we watched it cheering like crazies in our living room um, in, in the U.S. And it was fantastic. When we had a chance, I had a chance to go to London in December. My husband was there for work and we made sure that we visited the Lord's Cricket Stadium, which is I the used to most, live like literally five minutes away from Oh my from God. Lord's. First of all, London's an amazing city. It was my first time there. I've been a, a lot of places, but I'd never been to London. Absolutely love it. Um, and they were shocked that Americans were there excited about visiting mm. Lords. And we're like, are you kidding me? This is one of the most famous cricket stadiums in the world. Of course. So you get a private tour and it was amazing. So that's my cricket story. And um, we are Americans that have been converted into loving cricket. And my husband's uh, cricket clothing line, London Royce, is is uh, taking off slowly but surely. It's pretty cool. Amazing. Do you guys sell just to the States or do you sell no, no. internationally? It's international and it's online. So everything is uh, direct to consumer. We just got our Amazing. first shipment of new hats actually overseas. I've become a, an expert in import export <laughs> services because it is a family operation now for now. You know, yeah. we're a small business and upstart, but uh, we were very excited to go pick our hats up from the port that came in. So it's pretty neat. Yeah, pretty cool. Okay, okay. So let's let's bring it back to politics a little yeah, bit. Um, yeah, yeah. What what initially drew you to the Republican Party and into working in Republican politics? You know, it started. Uh, it wasn't like I was born into it. I come from a blue collar family. My mom had me at twenty one. She was a single parent until I was fifteen. Um, she was in show business. I'm from North Jersey, Bergen County. Shout out to Jersey. Mm. I'm a very proud Jersey girl. Um, and uh, yeah, my mom was in show business. She was in theater. She was on Broadway. And um, it was not an easy decision for her to give all of that up to decide to have me at 21 in 1975. She very easily could have made a different decision. Mm. So I applaud her for that. My mom is awesome. She is the best. And everything good in me, I got from her. And um, my mom is a huge, huge influence in my life. I still talk to her 10 times a day. Like my husband gets jealous sometimes because it's mm-hmm. me and my mom, we're, we're two peas in a pod. Um, and my mom over the years, uh, she's very, very well-read, very inquisitive. She didn't go, she didn't graduate from high school. She went back and got her GED because like I said, she was in show business. So she was on her own in um, traveling, doing, doing theater and uh, eventually went back and got her GED. Um, but my mom is incredibly smart. She has a better vocabulary than I do. And um, so when she when she had me, she made it a point to make sure that I was always in, asking questions. And if she didn't know the answer, we would find out together. And this is before Google. So it was always, yeah. we were in the library or, you know. When you had to our, open an encyclopedia. Yeah. Exactly. I was just going to say, either we yeah. couldn't afford our own set of encyclopedias. So the library was down the street and we got a lot of use from us. Um, and so I just became very, uh, my mom treated me 
like a little adult from the time I was very young. She never talked to me in baby talk and things like she talked to me like I was a little, like a person. So being inquisitive and communicative and asking questions and finding the answers and having an opinion, that was instilled in me very, very young. And as I got older, my mom, you know, she, like I said, she's very well read. She started listening to talk radio in the mid to late 80s. And talk radio was, you know, a pretty right wing thing at the time um, because they, you know, you only had but so many cable news outlets. You didn't have the MSNBCs and things back then, no Fox News. And she realized she thought that she was a liberal right? She grew up in the Mm -hmm. 60s and 70s. So she thought that she was a liberal and, and, you know, because she was pretty open-minded on things. But then she realized as she got older that she actually didn't subscribe to some of the bigger government type of approaches to fixing problems the way that Democrats approached it. My mom was really, because she was so self-sufficient and she felt like she taught me to never be a victim of our circumstance. She goes, never be a victim of your circumstance. You know, you you don't think you're any lesser than because you're a woman, because, you know, you are, I'm biracial, by the way. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, don't let the color of your skin or anybody tell you, you can't be anything you want to be. So she felt that the Republican messaging behind kind of individual freedom, less government intrusion, more localized solutions to things, um, entrepreneurship and those kinds, you know, the idea of capitalism and you can come from nothing and be anything you want in the U.S. Those were things that my mom uh, saw as as valuable um, valuable principles. Plus, I come from a law enforcement family. My grandfather was captain of our police department of our hometown for forty years, so it was um, you know Fourth of July marching in the parade every year. My grandfather marched in the 4th of July parade every year from 1947 until 2016 when he passed away. His last public outing was being in his wheelchair, wheeled down the parade route with the police department. And he actually passed away about, excuse me, about seven days later. It was really Mm -hmm. cool to know that he got one last parade in. So I come from kind of a traditional... Um, blue collar American family like that. So that was just more in line with traditional Republicanism, you know, the Reagan Republicanism, um, George H.W. Bush, not like crazy right wing radical stuff, but mm-hmm. mainstream Republicans. And as I got into high school, um, I worked on the George H.W. Bush campaign in 92. It was my first kind of foray into organized politics. And, um, when I was a little younger, in eighth grade, I went on a one of those leadership trips where they send you to Washington, D.C. for a couple of days and you tour around and you see the Capitol and go to Congress. And I fell in love with it. I was fascinated. And I looked at this and I said, this is where I want to be. I made that decision at 13 because I was mm. so fascinated with how the government worked, being in the epicenter of political power where decision-making was made because I was always... For me, my motivation has always been helping other people. How can I use the talents God has given me to help other people realize their potential or, you know, help them get opportunities? And this is because I, you know, America's America. Um, so the best way I thought was, was involved in politics or going to law school, which I never ended up doing. And I kind of regret that. But, um, because I wanted to be where the decisions are made. This is where decisions are made that impact people's lives every day. So mm. I had my eye on going to Washington at about 13, and I did. I ended up going to George Washington University. 
I got very involved in politics immediately. I was vice chair of the GW College Republicans. <laughs> I ended up starting my own um, conservative volunteer organization as a response to AmeriCorps. <laughs> when, so, when were you, Bill, did you not did you not support AmeriCorps? I did not because I felt like it was paid volunteerism. So don't mm. call it volunteerism if you're getting paid for it. That's not mm. being a volunteer. That was the that was the philosophical problem I had with it. Not the idea that people can volunteer. I just didn't like the government being involved at that level. Like let the private sector do this. We can we don't need the government and government that strings attached to people's um altruism. So mm-hmm. I even wrote a whole thing. I can still remember it. I wish I could find it. I wrote a whole thing about paid volunteerism is an oxymoron for the GW Hatchet, which is our school newspaper. <laughs> I can still remember that. <laughs> um, so I, you know, I came to my political maturation in the 90s. So it was the basically the Bill Clinton era and yeah. all of the interesting things that happened there and the political dynamics and um yeah. you know. So I I, was, I remember. I think I'm how old are you, Tara? I'm 45. 45. Yeah. So I'm a little bit younger. I'm 40, but, um, but yeah, I I remember the Bill Clinton. And I think I don't, it feels to me, and it could just be my, that, that was the age, but it feels to me like kind of the genesis of pick a side. Like you're either, you know, um, maybe the beginning of the end, maybe it started much sooner, like I said, and it was just that I was 18 at the time. And no, you're not, you're not off base about that because, um, I I actually interviewed, um, Julian Zelzer who wrote a book about Newt Gingrich. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, again, during the, 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 the Trump era has forced me to do a lot of introspection <laughs> and, um, and, you know, what role did I play in, in creating the environment we're in now, um, being part of the conservative movement. But um, Newt Gingrich really kind of started that when he was in the House, when he first got elected to the House. And during the Reagan years, he was kind of building his reputation. In the 90s was the apex of his political power, where he became Speaker of the House after Republicans had been in political wilderness for 40 years and finally took over in 1993 in the big Republican takeover there. Mm. And when he was Speaker of the House, he knew how to use the media. He knew how to use um, C-SPAN the whole contract with America and you had uh, Tom DeLay as the hammer. And that is really where the culture wars and the us versus them became Mm. really pronounced. So you're not off base about that. It's true. We look back at that and we're like, yeah, that era laid the foundation for where we are now without question. And that was without social media. So, and I was in the middle of all of that. I was in the middle of all of it because I thought it was the right thing, you know? Yeah. I mean, I've got I have so many things, I, so many questions I have. I mean, the first question I, I think I want to ask is, um, I heard you on the on the Lincoln Project um, answering a similar question to the one I just asked about, you know, how you how you became a Republican or mm. where your conservative values started. And you mentioned um, beliefs around independence, like you just said, individual liberties, individual mm-hmm. independence, and ladders of opportunity. And it really struck me. I think it was might have been one of the first um, my introduction to the Lincoln Project, actually. Oh, I'm I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. (laughs) Welcome. (laughs) Thank you so much. Um, The reason it struck me is I was like, I would use the exact same language, like word for word to tell you why I became a Democrat. (laughs) And one of the things that I think maybe is, you know, an unintended consequence of the Lincoln Project, at least like in this sample group of one here, is, um, is that every time I listen, I'm like, we are really not as far apart 
as we imagine ourselves to be in this tribal culture. That's like, right. Definitely, there are you know certain you know we we've just touched on one like role of government and stuff, but. God, we we really share a whole lot of the same values and we really share a whole lot of the same principles. And, you know, I'm wondering, like, let's say, fucking, I hope it's, I hope you guys are successful. I mean, I know the whole singular mission of the Lincoln Project is to defeat Trump and Trumpism at the ballot box. That's right. The whole world is hoping we're successful at that. So let's, no pressure. Let's There's no pressure on us, right? Yeah, but let's say that we are, and like all all of those all of those you know senators are defeated. That are, you know, been lackeys, and Trump is out, and we have Joe Biden as president. What's next? How do we find our way back to each other as human beings, as Americans working together on policy that isn't conservative or progressive, but is just pragmatic, moving us in a positive direction? Hmm. Um, it's funny you, you use the term pragmatic because that's how I've been describing myself uh, for the last few years. Since the rise of the Tea Party and the more extreme the Republican Party has become, mm. um, I've always said that even from the beginning when I was all up in <laughs> Republican Party politics, I'd always say I'm a conservative first because it was mm. the worldview and the ideology by which I viewed things. And conservatism is so much bigger than the personalities, than some of the kooks that you see out there now. A lot of what you hear from them is not conservative at all, at all, um, in the classic sense. The term ladders of opportunity is one that I actually took from someone who was really influential in my conservative uh, journey, which was Jack Kemp, who was more of a bridge builder. And Jack Kemp, when he was the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development under George 41, George Sr., he was really adamant about demonstrating that to people, particularly in minority communities, to the non-traditional Republican constituencies. He was like, we think that our approach to governing and our approach to policymaking is the best for everyone, but our presence here and, and explaining that to people who think that we're their enemies it's lacking. We need to do better work here. And he would use the term, we believe in providing ladders of opportunity, not guaranteeing outcomes. You can't mm. do that with human nature. And that's kind of where progressives and conservatives diverge a little bit because we have differences in how we get there. But the mm. idea of ladders of opportunity, I think, is definitely an area that there's a lot of common ground on. And unless we start to find those areas of common ground, it becomes a battle of the extremes. And that goes for the progressive left too. You know, oh, for the, sure. you know, oh, the for Bernie sure. bros and and those guys on oh. that end of the spectrum, they're not helping the situation either with some of their more extreme views and tactics. And for so sure not. Yeah. I mean, so Twitter, like, Twitter calls me a shit-eating centrist, you know. Oh like my that's, god. Yeah, like, get, yeah. <laughs> listen, if that's the worst that you're called, then good for you. Because I can't even repeat to you some of the stuff that I'm called. It's so vile. It's it's yeah. crazy. But like and I by said, the way, I'm that's a, here too. That's in the UK too. Cause I mean, in the UK, I'm um involved in the the Lib Dems. And it, you know, we yeah. have a third, I mean, although anyway, I could get into the shambles that we are at the moment, but um, but at least there is a third centrist party. Um, but let me tell you, the vitriol I get is not from the conservatives. It's from it's from labor. It's from like the Jeremy Corbyn labor. Oh, you know, yeah. so yeah, yep. we're just as bad. They're just as bad. Well, yeah, it's, it's I don't know. Um, if they're just as bad as Trump, but but close. 
it's it, it, it's bad. You know what I mean? It's it's, it's yeah. Let's just call it bad. Yeah, yeah exactly. it's awful on on both sides. The you know extremes they're going to extreme. You know, and it's yeah. uh, it's that's not where we we want to be. And like you said, you heard language that was unifying. You know, in common ground that I said as a conservative, I'm right of center, and you're left of center. And I think that we fundamentally agree on where the problems are. We just may disagree on how we get there to solve them. And that mm. that allows for a lot of room to compromise. And that's yeah. how governing used to be. That's yeah. how it used to be. Since the 90s and, you know, forward, we've become more and more polarized and the extremes have been rewarded. Yes. And I think, that I the, think that's, that is so important. The extremes yes. have been rewarded, right? So we have the self-perpetuating like ego-driven cycle on both sides. For sure. And the media yeah. eats it up. Mm-hmm. You know, the media yeah. is a, it, it, it's a facilitator here because it's more interesting to cover those stories. And I think that there's a, you know, that's a whole different discussion about the role of the media amplifying those voices. It's kind of mm-hmm. like if it, if it bleeds, it leads. Yeah. And in this case, it's like the more extreme it is, the, the you know, the bigger the headline. Yeah. And it, it's a bit of the reality show version of politics. I've said for a long time that the Trump era is the Jerry, politi- the Jerry Springerization of politics. Yes, that's exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's, it's your worst version of a reality show yep. that we're living through. You yep. know, it's, it, it absolutely is. It's like you think you, about what is it about human nature that attracted you to shit shows like Jerry Springer, where people would watch that. Yeah. I and mean, you're, you're a child in the 90s too. People would oh, watch. Yeah. It was appointment television back then because you, you couldn't wait to see what the next train wreck was going to be. Yeah. And yeah, we had the that, musical here too, if you remember. Oh yeah, my gosh. You know, yeah, 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 that's yeah, right. They turned it into a musical. Goodness gracious. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. but Beginning of the end, I think. Glorifying the lowest common denominator of our human nature. And yeah. rea- and now then, then you look into reality television and the kind of bargain basement type <laughs> of programming, but people loved it. And it was feeding the worst instincts. And then that's what allowed us to get a reality show president in Donald Trump. Uh, You've got to be kidding me. Like I still, sometimes I still can't believe like how the fuck did we get here? It's, (laughs) there's going to be volumes and volumes written on how we got here. But when you start, my mom and I have a theory that it actually started with an MTV Rock the Vote panel, town hall with Bill Clinton in 1992 when he was running. (laughs) And someone, of course. yeah, well, you know, where someone asked him boxers or briefs. Remember mm. that? That was a huge cultural moment because yes. no one would ever dare ask the president yeah. or a potential president what kind of drawers they wear. Like that was that yeah. was so shocking, but accepted. And it became, yeah. that is when the, the end of decorum. I think, yes, the decorum glass was broken. And it's all been downhill since then. Because now we yeah. went from boxers or briefs to videos of a president, of a potential president bragging about grabbing women by their pussies, and he still got elected. Do you know, I, I kind of, I'm on a soapbox uh, here in the UK to anybody who will listen about the danger that I've seen in our last election here in the UK of this kind of erosion of some of the decorum. Mm-hmm. Um, because what I've always found, and I've lived in the UK on and off since I was 18. And um, what I've always found is that 
no matter the political party, no matter the the election, there was a level of just plain decency that right. was admirable. That's you know, right. and it was as an American, you know, growing up around you know the Bill Clinton time or becoming a, an adult around the Bill Clinton time, it was very noticeable to me the difference even at that time. And I'm starting to see it erode here. We're nowhere near as bad, you know, or they are nowhere near as bad in the UK yet as we are in the States now, but it only goes in one direction. Right. And I kind of keep saying like, listen, trust me, you do not want to end up here because it is, you know, then people don't trust their leaders, any institutions, you know, it's, it's the beginning of the end of everything. Correct. And that's why mm-hmm. those of us who have been in the never Trump camp um, have been so passionate about this for so long, from the very beginning, um, yeah. you know, from the time that Donald Trump, I mean, even back when Donald Trump was doing the birther nonsense back in 2011, like, like I said, I grew up in New Jersey, right outside New York City. So I grew up with Donald Trump being a buffoon on the you know front page of the tabloids. Yeah, he was a joke, right? He yeah. was a joke. Nobody took Donald Trump seriously in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area, the tri-state area. We saw what an obnoxious, you know, attention whore that he was throughout the whole 80s and 90s when he, who bankrupts casinos more than once? Yeah, like, I know. You know, you've got, I know. who He's does like burning that? money. I know. Yeah. It's crazy. And, and, and so what he did to New Jersey by um, bankrupting those casinos, he, 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 ruined a lot of people's businesses in, in, in Atlantic City. And he was, he was a, a pariah. He was a mm. laughing stock. And he was on the brink of, obscurity if it hadn't been for his daddy rescuing him and the Russians coming in and rescuing him with loans and buying properties and infusions of cash. Back in the 90s, no American banks would do business with him. He was a terrible businessman. So, you know, to see, to think that, to watch Donald Trump descend down that escalator and give that horrible speech in 2015 to kick off his campaign, I looked at this and went, oh my God, okay, look, this guy, there's no way the American people are going to put up with this. It's a fun I show. the same thing. You know, I'm like, it's a show and people, Do again, you remember when, I think Springer it was Huffington thing. Post put him in into entertainment and not in politics, yes. was it? Yes. Yeah, and I, and I was or like, BuzzFeed. I remember having this argument well, with BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed, that's what it was. Yeah, BuzzFeed. Yeah, I can't, I think it was BuzzFeed. I can't remember, but I remember thinking, that's right, that's where he belongs. Exactly. And I wonder if every other media outlet had done that, if we might have had a different outcome. You know what? I think if every other media outlet had treated him the way that they would treat any other candidate, as far as like doing the exposés and the you know the long form um, investigative pieces into his background, how he got there, because it was all out there then. Yeah, yeah. Um, instead of treating him like a spectacle, um, I think there would have been a different result. They treated this; they saw this as ratings gold. And they yeah. put ratings and profits ahead of what was in the best interest of this country. And look what we ended up with. Look at yeah. like where our constitutional republic is on the brink of collapse. So all that free media covering him, covering all those those rallies, those batshit crazy rallies that he gives, giving him, I mean, it was like $2 billion worth of free media during the 2016 election. Mm-hmm. And Republican candidates who were running against him they had no idea how to handle it. They were trying to use a traditional political playbook against a non-traditional candidate, and it didn't work. Like, you can't mm-hmm. fight a traditional war when someone's fighting a guerrilla warfare. 
You can't. Yeah. You know, they're bringing bazookas to, you know, and Uzis to the fight and you're bringing, you know, a knife. Yeah. It's not going to work. And by the time they realized that that train was out of the, you know, out of the station, it was too late. It was too late. Yeah. And here we are. I want to ask you about, um, I listened to your recent interview with Miles Taylor. Oh, yeah. Um, who, for the audience who might not know, he worked in Homeland Security for the Trump administration. And like pretty much all these defectors, he's coming out of there, this with like stories, like trying to sound the alarm bell, like however, however bad you think it is, trust me, it's worse. It's worse. It's Which is what worse. he said. <laughs> yeah. But I, I want to, um, I want to ask about one specific thing that he said that I was like very affected by. And that was the suggestion, the serious suggestion on Trump's part, because, you know, he never jokes that, um, that we shoot people trying to cross the border mm, and yeah. build a moat around this beautiful border wall that's going to be filled with alligators to presumably, you know, eat people mm-hmm. who are trying to enter the U.S. Uh, for a better life. So, look, I mean, there is no greater wedge issue, I don't think, between Republicans and conservatives than abortion. Um, and I know that a lot of pro-life women in particular are justifying to themselves or to others if they feel like they need to their tolerance of Trump's corruption and sexism and authoritarianism and all the all the bad shit because they believe this so deeply you know they believe right. so deeply in in protecting life and you know for what it's worth I'm pro-choice but as a mother as as a woman who's had a miscarriage I know it's a complex emotional issue. And I personally believe that on both sides, we need a lot more nuance and compassion when we talk about it, because I I can totally see why people feel differently about it than I do. Right. Um, Right. My question isn't so much like, you know, what can I want to ask is, which is, you know, how can it be that women, mothers who feel so strongly about protecting life can support a president who so clearly has no regard for life. But I think the more important question is, how can we convince women who feel so strongly about protecting life that they should vote for the pro-choice Democrat as opposed to the, you know, pro-life on paper Republican? You know, that <clears throat> that is a... <laughs> That is a really, really hard question to answer because of the, like you said, the emotional, personal, deeply convicted um, feelings that people have on the issue of pro-life versus pro-choice. And it, you know, it goes into religious beliefs and things that are sometimes not rational, right? Because faith isn't actually rational. It's, it's a, it's a feeling, it's a, it's a belief versus logic for some, you know, um, but it is part of human nature. And um, what I say, that that contradiction, that level of cognitive dissonance on the part of the pro-life community that so rapidly supports Donald Trump, particularly the evangelicals, who have been the biggest hypocrites throughout this entire thing. That's crazy, isn't it? You would yeah. think that they would be the, the, you know, the moral bulwark of mm. stopping Donald Trump and they became <laughs> they became the biggest uh loudest cohort to accept him despite all of his moral failings it's 
really remarkable and people will be writing volumes on that as well. I have been very critical of the evangelical community for helping to facilitate this mess and they're going to have to answer for that. And I don't, I don't want to be anywhere near them when their judgment day comes and they have yeah. to answer for it. That's on them. Um, but the issue of, of, of pro-life and then the way that Donald Trump is so blatantly sociopathic when it comes to preserving life which is supposed yeah, I mean, to be this is a man i mean like like i like just like it's, it would be funny if it if it wasn't so serious like he wants alligators to eat people yeah oh like, and it's or to it, shoot his he he has a diseased mind and anyone yes. who yeah. um if you haven't read mary trump's book about oh, God, donald trump's up, you know, upbringing yeah um, for your listeners, if you haven't read yeah. that book, you should, because it really gives a window into the depravity, the level of it, where it came from and why. Um, and you just realize that he is irredeemable. And yeah. it's very rarely can you say that about someone, but Donald Trump is one of those people. He is such mm-hmm. a diseased person and such a, uh, a emotionally damaged person that at 75 or however old he is now, it, he is irredeemable. And the, the characteristics that he displays daily are the most dangerous type of character traits for someone to be in a position of power in a job that requires you to realize that it's bigger than yourself. When you are a malignant narcissist, you do not have the capacity to believe that anything is bigger than you. You don't yeah. have the ability to empathize. So when he talks about, you know, it's kind of like, I don't, oh, I'm not going to call him a serial killer, but it's like that no. disregard for life. <laughs> I mean, the, the malignant narcissism that he displays is, I, I mean, it's textbook. It's textbook. There's a documentary out there right now called Unfit that people should watch too, where psychologists talk about his traits and what they, you know, it's it's just, it's scarier. Maybe I don't want to drive people anymore, <laughs> make people any more neurotic <laughs> than they are about this because I get it, but it's documented. So when he talks about, you know, just blatant disregard for other, other lives and where he's fascinated with dictators and murderers like Kim Jong-un, yeah. who fed his uncle to crocodiles, by the way, and the the new Bob Woodward book talks about that's Trump's probably admiration. where he got the idea. Yes, that's probably yes. where he got the idea. That's why I'm yeah. bringing it up? You know, yeah. this is some like medieval twisted shit. And who who like talks about that and and is like enamored with it? That is disgusting. You should be repulsed by that. But no, he obsessed over it. Um, when he's cozying up to people like. Putin, who murders journalists and, you know, pushes, poisons um, dissidents and people fall out of elevator shafts mistakenly and, you know, as accident, quote, accidentally and, you know, they murder their dissidents. Or Duterte in the Philippines, who is engaged in extrajudicial killings of people who are, who are on drugs, um, where they, he thinks that that's a great idea. Or Xi Jinping in China, who literally has concentration camps. Uh, imprisoning the Uyghur people, millions of them, and forced mm. abortions and sterilizations and, I mean, mass killings. And, and Trump was like, yeah, whatever. There yeah. is something wrong with that. And when you hear him talk about the way that they, the cruelty, the cruelty is the point, right? The cruelty yeah. by which he wants to treat migrants who are coming here for a better life. And I'm a pretty hardliner when it comes to immigration and border security, because I worked on that issue when I worked in Capitol Hill, and it's a mess. 
it is an absolute mess. And it has been for 30 years. And it is definitely one of the failures of our Congress not to get it under control. Um, we're still the most generous country in the world where we allow more than a million people to come here legally every year, but the system is broken on so many levels. And it's not fair to the people who are coming here because we facilitated it. And so what, mm-hmm. what do you expect? Of course, people are going to put their lives on the line to come to the land of milk and honey here in the U.S. where we have allowed them to work illegally and in the shadows and exploited their, exploited their, um, their, their, uh, positions in life for cheap labor. And it's like, and even if they are breaking the law, you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to be murdered for breaking the law. Like that's not, not, that's not a proportionate. That is not how we handle things in America. And, you know, this isn't some medieval uh, kingdom fiefdom, you know, from the 12th century. Like what the fuck? When he told me that, I was just horrified. Yeah, horrified. it was it was the thing that stuck with me most. And I, so I when I go back to the question is is how do we, oh, how do we I'm, I'm not people? I'm not the right person, right? Because they they won't listen to me because I'm a democrat. But but how do we convince this population that in this election the candidate who is more in line with their values is yeah. actually a pro-choice candidate? So what I would say to them is the idea of uh, abortion on demand and the things that they find unacceptable, the federal government really has absolutely no sway in the day-to-day laws and and um, uh, policies concerning abortion in states and localities. It's really a state and local issue at this point since it is settled law from the Supreme Court. The president of the United States has zero direct influence on that. What they do have an influence on are policies that impact people's lives every day directly, like what we see in immigration, like Mm -hmm. the policies that are the policy priorities of how to treat um, um, migrants or uh, women and children or um, refugees. These are things that you see every single day you know, children, kids in cages and being separated from their parents is something mm-hmm. that the federal government impacts right now. Abortion is not something that happens right now. So mm-hmm. how do you look at what's happening every day and looking at these at, at the way that you're dehumanizing other people? Would you mm-hmm. ever treat your neighbor like that? You know, you call yourself a Christian. How is this in yeah. line with the Christian credo? Yeah. It's not. Yeah. So they need to take take a step back and look at what is in front of them right now, not some esoteric possibility of a law being repealed and all this and that. That doesn't impact your life every day or anybody's life every single day. This does. So they have to look at the here and now and think about, is this, are you comfortable with this? Take away the D or the R from it. But if it was presented to you, you have someone who may think women have the, you know, are supportive of a woman's right to choose. That's a personal decision. And frankly, that is a decision that an individual woman makes. Where's the responsibility yeah. of the woman who makes that decision? That's not the government's fault. That's the that's mm-hmm. up to the woman. She has the right to make that decision. So stop trying to put this on the federal government as if they're the evil people. Stop looking at it like that because 
<laughs> there the law is the law at this point. So yeah, stop it. And I would I would argue this that this issue is just being used to manipulate people. Oh, um, you know, again, sure. just to, to, again, it's it is the ultimate web issue for sure. The, issue. the other the other part about that um, the Miles Taylor interview and what makes Miles Miles Taylor so credible and impactful is that he was the chief of staff for the Department of Homeland Security. So he was literally in the room where it happens for two years. Mm. And he, the stories that he tells are unreal. If people, you know, they should follow Miles on, on Twitter and, and, and his career now and him, you know, things that he's speaking up and the interviews that he does. He told another story uh, along the same lines about how Trump was obsessed with the color of the wall, the paint, yeah. and yeah. that he wanted it to be painted black so it would get so hot that it would burn the flesh of the of the migrants trying to come through if they touched it, and how he actually drew a, 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 an illustration of spikes that he wanted on top of the wall so that it would impale anyone who tried to climb the wall. The, this was real. He said he saw the drawing. Trump had a, he thought this out to the point where he was drawing it. This is really a sick motherfucker. And yeah, and he's not, and this is not out. a pro-life person. That's like, no. <laughs> like this no. is not somebody who values life. No, like, definitely. He's, he this is pro-life before. He's been pro-choice no. his entire life. He's been very vocal about it. He's the con man part of him, the snake oil salesman bullshit artist that he is, is it's like all the evidence was there, but people are so obsessed with him because he, um, it's the power of mass media and manipulation and he's very, very good at it. Yeah, he he does have a talent for that. We can't, we can't underestimate nope. him. In that way. Um, okay, I want to ask one more question before we go to our quick fire round. Sure. And this one I prepared stats for, so I'm going to read. So, um, in the U.S., 38% of Democratic senators are women versus 17% of Republican senators, uh, senators. In the House, it's 45% of Democrats are women and uh, 11% of Republicans. So you probably know that. But this mm-hmm. is a trend we see worldwide. So in the U.K., 24% of conservative MPs are women. That's the lowest proportion of any elected party aside from the DUP, which is even more conservative. Um, for comparison, 54% of labor MPs are women and uh, 64% of my party, the Lib Dems, which are like our centrist party, are, are women. In Australia, 23% of the right-leaning liberals are women, 47% of the left-leaning uh, uh, parliament uh, or, or labor are women. Even in Sweden, <laughs> where <laughs> women make up nearly 50% of the parliament overall, Amongst those that are from the conservative Swedish Democrats, it's only 29%. So my question to you as a conservative woman is, is there something about conservative political philosophy worldwide that is just plain less hospitable to promoting women to power? Um, I think that as the conservative um, parties have become more extreme, that's worldwide too. You know, we're seeing yeah, a rise in that. You know, you look at what's happening in Italy, with the five star party over there and, you know, in other places in, in Brazil. Europe. And yes, yeah. Brazil with Bolsonaro and um, Hungary. Like, it's just, it's a problem. And um, I think that there's a part of the conservative family values part that's just been perverted. And the more extreme religious views of the role of women in the household. Um, may be a part of that, that women are seen as the caretakers and, you know, they, they should be the ones that, that don't put their careers ahead of their families. And that's just such a outmoded, outdated, 
um, really primitive way of looking at the role of women. I'm sorry, but I firmly believe that women actually rule the world. We just let men think they do. And, (laughs) (laughs) you know, just think of how how lost men would be without women, a strong woman behind them Mm. or, you know, women, women, the, the impact that women and influence that women actually have and the thoughtfulness in which we approach things. And, you know, we're the way we approach governing and and working together and leadership is just so much different than men. You know, boys are just men can be ridiculous sometimes, but (laughs) Um, but the conservatism, the the tradition, like what conservatism taking away the political part of it, the, again, it it is about individual empowerment, and it's about, um, it, and that doesn't ha- that doesn't have a gender assignment to it. So you would think that if the the liberal, um, lowercase liberal enlightenment of Western philosophy would be very accommodating to elevating women to positions of power. I mean, look at look at Germany. You know, look at mm. Angela Merkel, um, even the UK, you know, Margaret Thatcher and Theresa May. And, you know, you guys have, have elevated women um, quicker than the U.S. has in a lot of other places that are just more progressive in that way. Um, but I also think that there's a, uh, in the U.S. particularly, the gender role issue and and with families and things and that women just feel that they are, you know, they're more likely the caretaker of the children and have to balance life and work in in ways that men just don't. That, that it's taking time to break those barriers and and policies and workplace policies with childcare and telecommuting and um companies are recognizing that you in order to to not punish women for wanting to be mothers and have families, you, you're gonna you you need to make accommodations for that. You know there are a lot of countries mm-hmm. that have um, different policies that allow to you know that accommodate women who have children um, yeah. because the, you know, the husbands too. don't have that. Yeah, well yeah, now it's too. changing. I mean, it's starting yeah. to change, right? With gender roles, yeah. men playing a larger role of that, and getting paternity leave now, and things so like that. that yeah, that so are that you it. you have a choice, you know. To that's Correct. what I think that the Nordics have done really well is to say you're going to share a year off, <laughs> you right. know, and we're right. going to we're going to mainstream it that both of you take some time off as opposed to just one. So yeah, and I think that yeah. that's good, and, and you know, the U.S. is starting to kind of catch up a, a little bit, but that's a big issue, I think, because mm. when you run for office. It's brutal. You know, most women are looking at it, they're like, fuck that. I'm not putting my family yeah. through that. And, you know, and um, I've got... I think you have to be a little bit of a sadist, actually, to go into politics now, actually. I'm, yeah, I mean, you know, I um, my long-term goal is to eventually run for office. I hope to run I was going to ask you. I was going to yeah. ask you, yeah, if you're going to run for office. Okay. For, absolutely. That's my long-term goal. And I thought by now that I would have been, uh, you know, if you would have asked 18-year-old Tara where she would be at 45, it would be, I'd already be in Congress by the time I was 30. But sometimes life doesn't take you that way. <laughs> and, you know, I got married later in life. I didn't get married till I was 38. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I, I don't have children. I hope that I am still, there's still hope for me. Um, I would love to uh, have children, but, you know, it's, um, it, you know, women are becoming mothers and starting families later in life because they're choosing career. And it's, um, that's good. It has its pros and cons, but you see that women are just kind of like, look, if this is what it takes for us to have to get established in our careers, and I guess that's what it's going to take and have kids in our forties. Thank God for technology that's allowing that to happen. Um, but it's, uh, you shouldn't have to make that choice. And I think that the world is becoming more 
open-minded about that and recognizing some of the hurdles for women. Um, Not as quickly as I'd like here in the U.S., but I think we're definitely making progress. Will you run as a Republican? That depends on what happens this election. Mm. I would never run as a Democrat, though. I'm just not, I wouldn't, I I just don't agree with um, a lot of the Democratic policy uh, prescriptions to things. So I just, Mm. that's just not where my worldview is. I would go independent before before that. But if Donald Trump wins again, um, I will have no affiliation with the Republican Party. I was wondering what you think about this. I mean, you know, again, uh, you've described um, Trump and Trumpism, well, Trumpism, I think, as a cancer to the Republican Party. Yep. And I think that's in a cult. Yeah. (laughs) I think cancer is a really apt metaphor because a cancer, you know, cancer attacks an already Mm -hmm. weak immune system in a lot of ways, right? And we talked about the kind of the genesis of this. But my question is, do you think that you know, after this election or potentially after the next election, depending on what happens, that we can heal the Republican Party from this? Or do you think it's better to just let the Republican Party die of this cancer and start a new, you know, party or center-right party or another right party? Yeah, so that's partially why I haven't completely left my affiliation as a Republican behind yet. There are those of us who feel like there's still hope for the party to be rehabbed, you know, maybe Mm. we're kind of going through chemotherapy right now, Mm -hmm. um, hoping it doesn't completely metastasize to every organ and then it's a lost cause. Mm. Um, Some folks have just said, forget it. We, you know, we're done. We're done. We don't want anything to do with this anymore. And trust me, I have woke, I've, I've awakened on more than one day during this nightmare and said, fuck this, I'm done. I cannot have anything to do with these bastard Republicans and their cowardice and their hypocrisy. How dare them? First it was Charlottesville. Well, first it was when Donald Trump got elected. I was like, okay, I don't know. I have to reevaluate this. But then I thought, okay, let's see. Republicans, they've got some sense. They'll have some guardrails. We saw that go right out the window. Mm-hmm. Um, then Charlottesville it's The weak happened. immune system. Yeah. Yes, that's right. That's exactly yeah. right. Um, Charlottesville was one of those moments where it was like, this guy is, he's morally equivocating on white supremacists. Okay. And someone died that this is bad. Then yeah. it was the, you know, Putin, why would he, when, when he stood there in Helsinki and basically threw our intelligence services under the bus in order to side with Vladimir Putin on the issue of them interfering in our elections. That was so offensive to me that I just couldn't even function. I said, this is crazy. And people justified that. Then, you know, impeachment, um, the kids in cages, the Brett Kavanaugh hearings two years ago, Mm. um, that was incredibly painful and yeah. I almost had, I, you know, w- that woman who approached Jeff Flake in the elevator to tell her story about sexual assault and watching his face. And Jeff Flake is actually a very good, good man at heart. Um, you know, he's a Mormon, he's moral, and you could see the 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 the, the conflict in him. Um, but he still ultimately sold out and voted for Kavanaugh. Um, but that incident, my my mom was a victim of sexual assault and it was, which I did not know about. And she told me about it after that, during the, you know, the whole Kavanaugh thing and her story behind that. And I, it was just like, I can't be associated with these people. But then I was talked in my, even my mom said, yes, but you can't let the crazies take over. 
We have to yeah. have two healthy parties. Um, that's the way our system is now. You, if you leave and you know you take the others with you, who's left? We, we're yeah. not going to cede this to the crazies. So that's why I've decided. Okay, I'm going to give it a shot. You know, myself and others. Miles actually, Miles Taylor started a group called Repair, um, which is the goal is to try to repair what is left of the Republican Party after this whole thing is over. And if Trump gets elected again, I think there's no hope. If he is defeated, then there is some hope because the people who just went along for the ride because they wanted the financial benefits or they, you know, they didn't have the the they didn't have the the strength to stand up to it. But now that it's gone, they'll be like, well, yeah, you know, we really thought it was terrible. We want to get the party of Reagan and Lincoln back, right? That's why the Lincoln Project started. Um, there may be an opportunity for that, but we'd have to purge the party of the extremists. We'd have to, because they, they literally are a cancer. And it was, I believe it was, um, Governor Perry who first said that Donald Trump was a cancer, uh, back in 2015 before he decided to join the administration as the secretary of energy and sell out, um, like many others have. So, you know, it's, it, it is a Herculean effort for sure. But um, we just don't want to let the party of Lincoln become the party of Trump permanently, which will end up on the ash heap of history on the wrong side of it. You know, I don't want to be on the wrong side of history and I'm going to do everything I can to try to rebuild it, try to be that bridge builder. But if Trump wins again, God help us. And I think at that point it's it's, um, irreparable. I mean, for what it's worth, the Democratic Party was once the party defending slavery, you know, and we're now, we're now what I would, what I would say, you know, the party, you know, defending, you know, racial justice. And I mean, I'm not saying we're, you know, only party. I don't want to get into that, but but you can, you can definitely, uh, you know, salvage, salvage, turn around if that's, if that's your one example. And I would, by the way, also completely agree that we need two healthy parties. Like I'm not one of these people that thinks we need to burn the Republican party to the ground and we should all become Democrats. That would be horrible. We would become the most corrupt, you know, party like in a second because that's human nature. Power corrupts. Absolutely. Power corrupts. Absolutely. Right. We need the challenge. We need the, we need the debate. We need people, you know, with different ideas pushing us in different directions. And that's why it's so important that we do get this cancer out of the Republican party and, and help the Republican party be healthy again. I think. Listen, that's why our the founding fathers, this is an argument that goes back to the founding of America. They called them factions. They worried yeah. about exactly what we were seeing today. The tribalism, the extremists, and that loyalty to party, uh, loyalty to the faction would supersede um, constitutional principles and and the things that make our, our government run. Um, that it would no longer be about what's in the best interest of the people, that it would be about what's in the best interest of the faction. And, you know, if any, if people are nerdy historians and want to go back and read like Federalist 10 and some of the, the debates between Hamilton and Madison over the, over, you know, factions and parties, it's, they, they were, har- they were horrified by the idea of what, what's happening now. Um, mm. the warnings are very stark. And there's a reason, you know, I, I gave a speech recently. We did a, um, a, a convention on founding principles, kind of as counter-programming to the Republican National Convention. 
and um, where we reiterated some of the top 13 founding principles that, that the Republican Party has completely strayed, you know, strayed from. And one of them was protecting the freedom of the press and the importance of the freedom of the press. And with Donald Trump attacking the press as the enemy of the people, using language that authoritarians like Stalin and, and Lenin and Mussolini mm. used, um, and Hitler, um, that, 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 you know, the taking pages out of the authoritarian playbook, one of the first things you do is you discredit the media, the free press. Mm-hmm. And the founding fathers, they felt it was so important that you have an informed citizen th- citizenry with a free press that was not um, influenced or um, constrained by the government because they saw what happened under the monarchy when that happens. You need to have an informed citizenry that, that they put it in the Constitution. They don't mm-hmm. have parties in the Constitution, but protecting the the institution of a free press is constitutionally protected for a reason. Thomas mm-hmm. Jefferson warned. He said, look, we don't have a free, an informed citizenry with our free press as the vehicle to bring that information. Then the people become basically uh, lambs to the slaughter. You know, the wolves of the government will, will just devour the citizenry. We must yeah. protect this. And, and yeah. look at, so Donald Trump knows that. Why do you think he's attacking any, anything that holds him accountable? The checks and balances of holding powerful people accountable are being, you know, undermined left and right because that's what authoritarians do. If they can't yeah. be held accountable, they can get away with all kinds of stuff. And that, that's what Trump's trying to do. And uh, we want no part of that, which is why we're out here trying to sound the alarm, hold them accountable while we still have these freedoms. Yeah. I could talk forever about this. Let's switch uh, switch gears quickly to our quickish uh, Tilly round. Uh, if you have another five, 10 minutes. Yeah, we can do it. Yeah. Okay, great. What's one lesson you've learned the hard way? <laughs> one lesson I've learned the hard way. That, that people you thought you knew are capable of becoming everything they claim to despise. Mm. And I've learned that the hard way by losing very close friendships during the Donald Trump presidency, watching them become people that are unrecognizable. It's and like it's an addiction. It's like, a, it's like watching an addict. Yeah, you know, it is. Descend. Yeah. It is. What has feminism got wrong? That their women are not a monolith and... Mm-hmm. Um, demonizing women who may have a different viewpoint from what the traditional feminists think the role of women should be and how they should conduct their lives has become a bit too judgmental and doesn't leave enough room for nuance. Mm. What's an opinion you once held strongly that you sense change your mind about? Um, Criminal justice. Because I, like I said, I grew up in a law enforcement family so I was very hardline on um, issues of criminal justice. And after working on Capitol Hill and having experience with helping wrongfully convicted law enforcement officers navigate the criminal justice system and the prison system, uh, I have completely changed my mind on mandatory minimum sentencing, on um, the conditions in prison, on the importance of helping people transition back into the real world. So bringing down recidivism rates, Mm -hmm. those things I was much, much tougher on until I saw it in practice and realized that the system was broken. 
And I've become a big advocate of uh, criminal justice reform. Hmm. When do you feel you're most powerful? Hmm. When I'm most powerful, um, I don't know if it's most powerful, but where I feel, feel most empowered is when I have the ability to speak in front of other people and provide inspiration, encouragement, and speak truth to um, reinforce some of the beliefs and um, uh, you know aspirations of others who think that maybe they can't do it. So I don't know yeah. about powerful, but I feel the most empowered when I have that opportunity. I, I consider that to be a, a privilege. Mm. What unearned privilege or unfair advantage has been most instrumental to your success so far? Unfair advantage? Yeah. Or unearned <laughs> privilege. <laughs> um, I think probably the fact that I'm a minority woman, conservative, mm -hmm. has given me more attention because I'm considered an anomaly. So mm -hmm. you would think that some would think that that's, um, you know, uh, it's it, it, yeah, that, that would be it. Sometimes people... Yeah. Give they give me the opportunity opportunities that others would not have because they look at it possibly from a tokenism perspective. But I make sure that no one ever tokenizes me, and I take full advantage <laughs> of those opportunities that I'm given. Amazing. <laughs> they make a lot of presumptions, and uh, I I uh, I've destroyed a lot of them. <laughs> Amazing. Um, what are you still insecure about? Uh, I'm still insecure about my weight. It's something that is uh, has I've struggled with for many years since I was an athlete when I was younger, and um, I had a really really horrible uh, heartbreak experience in college, and um, I became an emotional eater, and as a result of that, I have struggled with my weight for uh, a couple years now, and that's uh, I still struggle with it. Do you know I ask every woman on this podcast this question, and um almost everyone answers wait you're kidding yeah well no. you know it's it's real and especially for someone who as an athlete that was a really big part of my life i was a you know i was a pentathlete and a mm. volleyball player and i played um you know sports were really important to me so that um allowing myself to kind of become i don't know vulnerable enough that i that i became overweight and then couldn't conquer it because I'm so type A. It mm. was, uh, you know, it's something, again, that I have control over that I still, for whatever reasons, um, have not gotten fully under control. But now as I get older, it's, uh, you know, I can't play around with it because it's not, you know, it's <laughs> it's a health issue now at this point. Yeah. It's like, okay, Tara, really enough is enough. And if I want to have a baby, I've got to be in better health, you know? So... Mm. Um, you know, thinking about what it is that I self-sabotage, why I self-sabotage myself with this, that's a that's a deeper conversation that I have a little bit more insight into now than I did when I was younger. But um, but I am yeah. I am much better with oh, you're that. You're not alone. And, yeah. yeah, and my husband is so supportive, and you know, he he can become an emotional eater too with some with some things, and sometimes he lets himself get a little get a little uh, out of shape, and he can't afford that in the in the line of work that he does as a federal law enforcement officer. So we are on this journey together, and um, I have already bought a Peloton, and I'm anxiously waiting for, awaiting its arrival because I think this will be helpful. <laughs> Tara, I have a Peloton. Let's do classes together. I'm really bad and out of shape though. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh. Uh, listen, once I figure this whole thing, this whole Peloton universe out, I'm down for it. You know, okay. let's let's do it together. It's uh, amazing. Yeah, let's why not? Why not? Okay. Last question. What are you really fucking good at? <laughs> A lot of things. <laughs> Um, uh, oh, I'm really fucking good at debating. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. That's, uh, but I don't debate just to win. I debate to inform. Mm. And I think that's the difference between a lot of, a lot of people who go into this world that they, it's about trying to find validation for them. Um, I don't need that. My mom was very good at making sure that I had high self-esteem, that I didn't need validation from other people in unhealthy ways. Um, So that's what makes me fierce at what I do. And I hope to use that skill set to let other people know, particularly young women, that they are enough, they are good enough, and they should be unapologetic for who God made them because I am. That's amazing. I can't think of a better way to close this conversation. If people want to learn more about about you, about the Lincoln Project, about any of your other projects, where should they go? Well, I am really easy to find because there's only one Tara Setmayer. So (laughs) um, you can find me on on Twitter, which is where I'm most active as far as day-to-day thoughts and um, opinions. And that's at Tara Setmayer. You can find me on Instagram at the Tara Setmayer. Um, that's where you can see a little bit more into my personal life. It, it's less political there, but you can see a little bit more of, of who I am on Instagram. I also have a podcast called Honestly Speaking with Tara, which is very raw, very me, and a much more, a longer form version of what people see when they see me on CNN and other places in the media. Uh, and for the Lincoln Project, you can find us on Twitter as well. We have over 2 million followers at this point, which is just insane. It's really just become a movement. And it's it's an incredible honor to be a part of a movement like this, to fight for freedom, have fun doing it, and um, try to save our republic. So Lincoln Project is at Project Lincoln on Twitter, lincolnproject.us on on. Um, the website. And uh, yeah, so if you don't remember any of that, you just rem- you can just type in Tara Never Trumper and lots of stuff will come up. <laughs> Am I right in think you're doing a, 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 a show on YouTube? Is that yeah. is something you're coming out on YouTube? Yes, the Lincoln Project has decided to expand its footprint um, beyond just the ads and the town halls that we've been doing. People have really, they're just hungry for content from us. And um, we've started Lincoln Project TV, LPTV, which is on YouTube, the YouTube channel for Lincoln Project. And uh, we have a show that I co-host with the Rick Wilson, who is the mastermind behind many of the ads. And that's on at 9 p.m. Eastern time here in the U.S. 9 to 10, it's live on Monday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. But you can always watch the re-air if you can't watch it live. So yeah, check out us. Check us out on uh, Lincoln Project TV on the YouTube channel. Thanks to everyone for listening. If you've enjoyed the series so far, please do subscribe, rate, and leave a review wherever you're listening right now. It really does help put the series in front of more badass women and a few men too by increasing how we rank. While you're at it, check out the show notes for more info on our guests and to find out how to reach us on all the socials. As always, if you've got a story and you want to tell it like it is, I'd love to hear from you.